Well, that's certainly worth uh, applauding and uh, being excited about as uh, we birthed the City Life Center uh, some years ago, and to see that ongoing ministry there is really a wonderful thing. And so thank you for everybody that is uh, praying and supporting the, uh, the City Life Center. Continue to do so. I want to say good morning to our HP campus and our Cedar Lake campus who are joining us here together today. And uh, we come to a really, really wonderful passage of scripture today. You know, if there's a question that has haunted humanity ever since the beginning, that a beginning of, of, of our struggle, it is, how can I be right with God? I don't have to know you today to know that somewhere in the recesses of your soul is the question, how can I be right with God? Now, it's not often expressed like this. Oftentimes, people will say it this way. Something's missing in my life. I'm searching for what life is all about. I have to go somewhere and find myself. Ever say these kinds of things? Okay. It's also seen in the frenetic energy that we put into our search for meaning in other less-than-God things, like our careers, our relationships, our accomplishments, our families, and even our hobbies. Why are they so important to me? Why do we look to them for meaning? There's a question in our heart. There's a longing in our heart. Even the man who's camping in the infield of the Indianapolis 500 all week, hoping for a glimpse of his, fav his favorite driver while showing off his giant tattoo of the man's face on his back, may not say, how can I be right with God? But his whole life is consumed with seeking and connecting with someone that he perceives as ultimate. And of course, religion is the institutionalizing of these questions. All religions seek to provide a way for man to get right with God, to get back with God, monotheism, God's, polytheism, or Mother Earth, pantheism. And all of these longings and all of these searchings are rooted in a very basic question. How can I be restored to God? This is the quiet question that is the foundation of every mosque, of every cathedral, of every synagogue all over the world. It lies behind so many of our feelings of loneliness and disenchantment in life. Now, our default setting is this. When we feel this way, we think, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better. And so we just put our nose to the grindstone and we think that maybe by doing that somehow, the question will be answered, the longing will be satisfied. And of course, it doesn't. Religion feeds this, because religions have all kinds of moral things, do these things, try harder at these things, and maybe everything will work out. But it doesn't work. And this reality is what makes the text that we have before us today one of the greatest in all of the Bible. Scholar Leon Morris calls it possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. Think of that. Ever written. I, I, by, by the way, on my D.C. trip, I stopped by the Library of Congress. I had never been in the Library of Congress. Can I just tell you right now, there have been a lot of paragraphs written. <laughs> But of all of them, the most important, perhaps the one that we have before us today. 
And we're going to tackle it today by highlighting four words that stand out in the text, that really explain the text. Righteousness, sin, justify, and redemption. Righteousness, sin, justify, and redemption. Now remember what Paul said here up to this point. We've we've been working our way through Romans, and really beginning in chapter 1, verse 18, what Paul has said is, that all men are under the wrath of God, that all men stand as condemned, that all men are facing eternal judgment from God. The Gentiles, by virtue of the grandeur of creation and the conscience that God has placed within us. The Jews, by virtue of having the Old Testament law and yet not fulfilling it. And he quotes here in chapter 3, verse 10, from the Old Testament, where it says, none is righteous, no, not one. Now, why is that important? Here's why. Because to be right with God, you have to be as righteous as God. To be right with God, you have to be as righteous as God is. Morally perfect, absolutely without fail, no sin. And because none of us are, the result is, and this is the point that he makes in chapter 3, verse 19, not only are we under the wrath of God, and guilty before God, we are accountable to God forever. This sin that seems in our society to be not that big a deal or everybody's doing it is a sin along with all the others that I will be personally held accountable to God forever. In fact, if Romans ended in chapter 3, verse 20, this would just go down as a lament. Basically, the point of Romans would be, hey, human beings, get ready for hell Get ready for hell. But Romans doesn't end in chapter 3, verse 20. Praise God. In what is one of the most awe-inspiring and hope-giving passages in all of the Bible, the Apostle Paul here now unveils the greatest news of all. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And God's people said... Amen. Amen. Notice the first two words, but now. Imagine that there were no words like this. Imagine that none righteous, no, not one was the final word, and yet that's not what it says. But now. And if you were listening, you're like, hey, what's that? There's hope. The door's cracked. There's something here other than what 320 says? Tell me, what is it? I'll do anything, but Now, okay, well, now, now what? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Righteousness, our first of the four words. The righteousness of God. Now, what does righteousness mean? If we're gonna understand this text and really the book of Romans, you have to understand what righteousness means. What does righteousness mean? Well, we turn to Professor Professor Grudem who gives a wonderful definition here. God's righteousness means God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. 
God's righteousness is a standard, it is an expectation, it is a requirement for everything that God does and all that God has made. It is the outward expression of that character quality of God, of his absolute holiness and purity. Everything he does, therefore, is consistent with that moral character. It is the rightness of God's character and actions. This includes, by the way, his justice against those who violate his character. God's justice is also his righteousness. Now let's talk about uh, an example of this that we don't mind talking about. Let's talk about Satan. Somehow for us, we don't mind Satan getting his comeuppance. You know the story of Satan? God makes Satan, makes him a perfect moral being, makes him to reflect the character of God. What does Satan do? Satan rebels against God. Satan leads demons, uh, the uh, fallen angels, in a rebellion against God. What does God do? God acts in righteousness towards Satan. God enacts justice towards Satan. God judges Satan. God creates hell as a place for Satan and the demons. And we see all of that and we say, yes. We don't mind Satan getting his comeuppance. But what about us? This text says that after the fall, we have a lot more in common with Satan than we do with God. There is none righteous, no, not one. None of us here is living consistent with God's moral standard, okay? He is righteous, we are non-righteous, we are unrighteous. We are non-God-likeishness. Let me say that again. We are non-God-likeishness. Returning to a standing before God where we are righteous is the greatest need we have because unless that happens, we stand as condemned by the justice of God. Truth in the grandeur of creation can't save us. Moral conscience giving us a compass can't save us. Old Testament law as given through Moses can't save us. And here now it says, but now a righteousness, a way to right standing before God has been manifested. NIV has been made known. And we could stop there and go, oh great, more commands. Here comes more uh, commands written on stone, more things that we got to try to do. No, that's not what it says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, notice, apart from the law. Apart from trying to earn my way to God by my moral obedience, which I cannot do. And Paul adds this, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul here, he's mindful that he's writing to a Jewish, somewhat Jewish audience in the Roman church. And he doesn't want them to think that this is something new that is somehow, you know, disconnected from the Old Testament. He says, no, what I'm talking about is something that the law and the prophets witnessed to and testified to. This is what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with the disciples where he exegetes himself out of the Old Testament and says, did not the law and the prophets require that the Messiah would be crucified? So the the New Testament is not untethered from the Old Testament. It is fulfilling the Old Testament. Christ is the telos of the law, the completion of the law. And I, I say that because Within the last couple of weeks, a leading evangelical 
pastor, uh, very, very popular pastor, said that Christians need to unhitch from the Old Testament, is what he said. Okay, Unhitch from the Old Testament. I just want to say the New Testament never unhitches from the Old Testament. Okay? Rather, it shows how the gospel of Christ fulfills it, particularly the book of Hebrews. So beware of such teaching that somehow wants to just sort of take the New Testament out of the Bible and say, no, this is the new canon of Scripture. No, no, no. This, is, this new way is spoken of by the Old Testament writers. He says this, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And there you have, right there, this is the essential gospel. This is the John 3.16 of the book of Romans. It's like if you whittle it down right to its bare minimum, what is the gospel? It is the righteousness of God brought to us through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. What a wonderful truth that is. If you, if you can smell hell, what a wonderful truth it is that righteousness comes apart from the law. If you can hear the cries of hell, what a wonderful thing it is to think that righteousness comes apart from the law. It is only when we realize how lost we are and condemned we are and to think for a moment what hell forever would be like that the thought that righteousness and right standing before God is now available apart from a way that I could never fulfill. For all who believe, he adds it for emphasis. This is his summary statement. This is like Romans in one verse. Now, in typical Paul fashion, he unpacks this a little bit. Okay, Notice that he does so by returning to our hopeless condition. Verse 23. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction. What distinction are you talking about? There's no ethnic distinction. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, a Gentile wishes he was a Jew, a Jew wishes he was a Gentile, Martian. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Why? All have sinned. All of us are in the same boat. Okay? We're all on the Titanic together. Down we go. Why? Because all have sinned. And sin is our second word. Our second word. What is sin? This seems to maybe beg the question if you've been around the church so long. Well, sin, we hear about sin all the time. It's that, you know, uh, uh, do you know what sin is? We turn again to Professor Grudem. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act, attitude, or nature. We say to my, my little girls, I say, you need to obey mommy or obey daddy right away, all the way, with the right attitude. It gets at all the three things that are, that are essential, okay? Obedience is fulfilling what is said, but it's also flowing from a heart that wants to do that, that loves God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But none of us do. Do you? All have rebelled. All have violated God's rule. All have fallen short of God's ordained purpose, which is for us to bring glory to him by living consistent with his righteousness. Nobody does that. All, without distinction, fall short of God's glorious 
purpose. And I wonder as I say this today if you're in agreement with me. Can I ask you, are you in agreement with me? Okay. The reason I say that is I don't know if you realize that what I am saying runs completely counter to the narrative, to the religion of the secular world that we live in. The basis of our secular religion around us is that man is good. What is taught in our schools? Man is good. What is taught in the universities? Man is good. What is the explanation for all of the breakdown of society around us? It's a failure of society itself. We're all victims. We all have somebody that we can blame for why we do the things we do. We all have something we can blame for why the terrible things that happen in our world do. And you can blame the car, you can blame the alcohol, you can blame the gun, but we don't wanna blame the person for being essentially a bad person. Why? Because man is fundamentally good. I know of no verse in the Bible that says that. The repeated testimony of the Bible, and frankly, the testimony of every newspaper in America every single day, is not that we are fundamentally wonderful, good people, but that we are fundamentally depraved and sinful and broken. Is that not why the world is the way that it is? And the language of the Bible is that we are accountable to God forever. Now, my parents were in town this last week. My my. My aunt passed away, and so they were passing through. My parents were in town, and because of that, because of sleeping arrangements, my four-year-old daughter uh, was out of her bed and sleeping somewhere else, and so it was nap time, and I told her where she was going to need to sleep. Well, she didn't want to sleep where I was telling her where she needed to sleep. And so she went up to my mom, and she said, can you discipline daddy? My mom said, no, he's too big. (laughs) She said, please, can you discipline daddy? We're okay with moral accountability as long as it's somebody else's moral accountability. Discipline all you want, somebody else. But the Bible always wants us to look in the mirror and to look at ourselves. It's easy to say the shooter here and the this, that, and whatever is a bad person. But can you look in the mirror and see yourself the way God sees you? Not as righteous and wonderful and good, but as a sinner who sins in act and by nature a sinner. I really like this quote regarding the standard of righteousness. The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you at the crest of a mountain, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. We all fall short, and it's not by a little. It's massive. 
falling short. All have sinned. All fall short. But here now is the glorious news. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Third word, justified. And this is a word that dominates Romans. And if you're going to mature and grow as a Christian, needs to dominate your understanding of who you are and how God has saved you. It comes out in Romans in various forms. Justify, justified, justification. It is essentially a legal term. It's a forensic term. In our, in our legal system, it is the equivalent of a judge looking at an accused person and saying, not guilty. I hereby declare that you are not guilty. And you've probably seen moments like this in the movies or maybe, you know, live uh, video from a courtroom. And to see the look on the face of the accused who's facing, you know, the death sentence or long time in prison when all of a sudden they're told, you are not guilty. You are, you are free. That sense, that relief, right? Where they're like, oh, 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 right? We like it. Justice has been done. He's been declared or she's been declared not guilty. But what do we call it when someone has done the crime and the judge declares them not guilty? We call that injustice. We think that's a, that's a terrible thing for somebody who has done it to get off as if they didn't do it. Are you with me? When the criminal gets a free pass, we are incensed. People, you know, riot about these things. We demand justice. Well, friends, listen. Justification is not God declaring we, the innocent, forgiven. No, we are not innocent. We are far from innocent. We are all sinners. We fall far short of the glory of God. Justification is not God making us innocent. Justification is God declaring us innocent. It is God reckoning us as innocent. It is him declaring us righteous, legally granted a status in the eyes of God of complete righteousness, not for a moment, but forever. Are we righteous? No. After God declares us righteous, are we righteous? No. We're not. But God says we are righteous and treats us as if we are righteous forever. This is justification. Now how can God do this, right? This would, in the court of law, we would see this as being an injustice. This would be a terrible judge. Let's get him out of office. How can God do it? Well, he explains it in verses that we're gonna get to, but notice how this verse continues and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is a gift. It is the grace of God. 
Now here we are in graduation season, and by the way, families, if you have a child graduating college, high school, kindergarten, <laughs> congratulations, well done, well done. But what happens at uh, this time of year is there's lots of gifts that are given, okay, lots of gifts that are given. So that if you see a recent high school graduate driving down the road in a new German-made car, what do you think? You don't think to yourself, wow, McDonald's is paying amazing wages these days. You don't think that because there's no way that an 18-year-old working at McDonald's could buy an $80,000 black German-made car. There's only one explanation for a high school senior driving down the road in a car that he owns with a price tag of $80,000. And that only explanation is he got it as a gift from mommy and daddy. Right? Which is why when you see said 18-year-old driving down the road in the black German-made car with a smug look on his face, with a kind of smirk on his face that tells you that he thinks that he's better than you in his car given to him by his mommy and daddy than you are in your Chevy it is so maddening. You want to shout through the window, your 3.25 grade point average didn't earn this car. <laughs> your third chair trumpet accomplishment didn't earn this car. Your fifth place homecoming king vote <laughs> didn't earn this car. You have what you have because it was given to you. By his grace, as a gift. Justification is by his grace, as a gift. We have our right standing before God. It is purely a gift. Mount says this, one of, the fallen, one of fallen humanity's most difficult tasks is to accept righteousness as a gift. With every fiber of their moral being, people want to earn God's favor. From a human perspective, this sounds both reasonable and noble. The hidden agenda, however, is that it would provide a basis for boasting. God neither needs nor desires our help in doing what we could never accomplish. So that if you see a sinner in heaven, friend, you can look at that sinner in heaven and think to yourself, your 3.25 moral grade point average didn't give you heaven forever. The only explanation for a sinner being in heaven is that he or she got it as a gift. At the same time, if you look and see a sinner in hell, what you can say to the sinner in hell is your 3.25 moral grade point average earned you this. There is no injustice for the sinner in hell. He or she is getting exactly what he or she deserves forever. 
So if a sinner is in hell, it is his fault. If he is in heaven, it's God's grace. So justification is not God making us righteous. This is why, get out of your mind the old Sunday school definition of justified, just as if I'd never sinned. That's not what it is, okay? If you want to stay in your first grade understanding of the gospel, you stick with that. But that is not justification. It is not as if I had never sinned. It is in spite of the fact that I have sinned every single day in ways beyond I could, what I can even know or imagine. Still, God grants to me righteousness, heaven forever, all by his grace. Now, the legal eagles and the social justice warriors right now, if you're tracking with me, you should be saying to yourself, something doesn't seem right here. How can God, completely holy and righteous, on his own, declare sinners righteous forever and treat them as if they'd never sinned? How can God do that and remain himself righteous because that doesn't seem like righteous. And indeed, God's holiness and his justice requires that a moral payment be made for every sin committed by a sinner who lands in heaven. So how does God accomplish this? And now we look at the rest of the verse and our fourth word today, redemption. And are justified by his grace as a gift through, see that? Here's the via, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. And this word has been so long associated with the gospel and Christianity that we have lost the fact that what it originally was used for was, in the first century, a payment that was made to buy a slave out of slavery and set him or her free. That's what it meant. Long before anybody associated it with Christianity, it was, it was a word for the slave markets, which now is applied to what God did in sending his son Jesus in order to accomplish our justification. A moral price had to be paid. And this is the answer to the justice warriors who look at biblical justification and protest. God is unjust in making us just. God is unrighteous in making us righteous. Our freedom has to cost Something. And the parallel this Memorial Day is too profound not to note. Here we live in the United States of America in a free country. If I was to ask you, are you a citizen of the United States of America? Most here would probably say yes. If I say, what did that cost you? Most people cost nothing. 
I was born. That's all I did. I was born. And all of us would acknowledge that we didn't really have a whole lot to do with that process either, right? We were just born. And that allows us to live in this free country. What are we free from? We are free from tyranny. We are free from fascism. We are free to vote as we like. We are free to speak as we desire. We are free to worship as our conscience dictates. We are free. We live in a free country. But is our freedom free? And so we have Memorial Day weekend, which is an annual reminder to us that what we have received freely and what we enjoy freely is a kind of freedom that is not free, that has come at a devastating cost. I read one report that said that in the, in the, in the history of the United States of America, 1.1 million servicemen and servicewomen have given their lives in a, in a war for our country. 1.1 million died so that we can be free. So if we ask the question, is freedom in the U.S. free? Well, for us it's free, but for somebody else it was incredibly costly. And see the parallel here in what's going on with what God does for us. God offers to us salvation freely. We are, we are born again. It is something that God wroughts in the spirit of man by his power and his sovereign grace. That he offers justification freely. He provides salvation freely. But that doesn't mean it's free. And it certainly wasn't free to God. Why? Because an unimaginable payment had to be made for us to experience salvation freely. And that is what this text is getting at. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, the ransom price, through the buyback. That was paid by Christ Jesus. That is in Christ Jesus so just like 1.1 million people have paid for us to be free, Jesus Christ gave his life as a payment so that we can be free. You with me? And that payment allows God to, verse 26, be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' death fulfills the moral requirements of the law. Jesus' death as the Son of God is the infinitely valuable moral payment required to pay the price that our sins deserve so that God can both be just, be righteous, and the declarer of the innocent guilty, uh, innocent, the guilty innocent forever. Both of those can be accomplished at the same time. And Romans is just gonna unpack this, right? Unpack this. The wages of sin is death, but the, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. These and so many other verses are just gonna bring us back again. And in a sense, here we are, Bethel Church, 
at the same place that we end up so many of our times together at. Here we are once again. With a question, what about you? Christian, can you allow this most wonderful paragraph to bring your soul to the point where your soul was when you received Christ in the first place? To get to that point of incredible wonder and gratitude that almighty God, the righteous, the infinitely righteous God, in an act of his sovereign, free grace that cost you nothing, would grant to you a status, a right standing before God and answer the, long, the ultimate longing of your soul. To once again come to the cross and be amazed that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Why? Because I fall short of the glory of God. I'm an unrighteous sinner. I, I don't deserve this. You don't. We don't. We don't deserve any of that. God didn't have to do any of this. Just send us all to hell and he remains the righteous God forever. But to display the glory of his grace and the glory of his love in the glory of his mercy, in the glory of his son Jesus, he enacts a redemption to buy us out of our slavery to sin and to grant us an eternal status as forgiven in his eyes forever, even though we are sinners, by the incredible payment of his son Jesus Christ on the cross. And if you are a Christian here today, this is how God saved you. And to just stand back in wonder and awe and worship? God, why have you done this? I see the how, but the why. And for gratitude and love and worship and obedience to flow from that gospel amazement. Christian, let this take your soul there. Now, if you're here today and you're a not yet Christian, we're right back where we are all the time again. What about you? What about you? You still living for the sight of the driver and maybe assigned something from him? You still living for the German-made car, thinking somehow that's going to give you status forever? You still living for the this or the that or the who? And yet down deep in your heart is that question, how can I know that I have right standing before God? What I am sharing with you is the gospel. It is the good news. And for you, friend, to be led to that cross and now to see and to understand how God accomplished and now offers salvation Notice it says, for all who believe. What's your role in this? Trust, receive. That's what we do with a gift. We just, we receive a gift. And to place your personal faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for your sins. And for God 
through that faith to declare you righteous forever is the greatest gift that you will ever have. So may Christians be amazed, humbled, and grateful. And may sinners be saved by today putting their trust in Jesus and receiving this free gift. May God be glorified as just and justifier of all who believe in Jesus. To him be forever praise. Amen.